Hello and greetings. Welcome to Capital Weekly's podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by Tim Foster, my colleague. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Rob Karinke of Grassroots Lab. Uh, sort of campaign strategist, data, a little bit of everything. Rob is our go-to person when we want to know about Los Angeles politics and what's happening down there in LA. He's also wearing, you can't see this, but he's wearing a San Francisco Giants hat. So my guess is he gets mugged about three times a day walking around in LA and Dodger country. But Study in Rob, contrast. <laughs> Rob, thank you very much for joining us. Um, tell us a little bit about what you, you do. I know you do the newsletters. I know you do campaign strategy, but what's kind of the main part of your day if you had to describe it? Yeah, other duties as assigned, I guess, maybe we would say. Um, no, you know, so uh, my business partner and I, Mike Madrid, we were actually talking. It's been 15 years ago this week since we started uh, California City News, which is a bit about how we started our firm. Uh-huh. Since then, you know, we've grown into a pretty wide footprint in California politics. Certainly local government um, it remains a key, you know, kind of key competency of ours. Mike and I met at the League of Cities. Um, we do campaigns locally. I'm running a LA city attorney's race right now. We had a county supervisor race uh, that we won outright in June, um, some other smaller stuff. We do a lot of campaign work. We do a lot of ballot measure work. Uh, I'm working on yes, I'm 30 right now. Um, I was working a little bit on the tribal stuff and we've been involved in one of the marquee, one or more of the marquee measures, I think every year going back to 2010, probably. You know, Mike um, is a Republican and you're a Democrat. Is. And you you get together though on a lot of camp um, and political issues. How's that work out? Are you like squabbling spouses or something? How's this? You're, how's you're like the forward party in one firm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you guys were calling me out for my Giants hat. You know, it's this it's 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 worse than the partisan divide. I'm the uh, Democratic Giants fan living in L.A. and Mike is the uh, Republican Dodger fan living in in Sacramento. Probably our biggest fights have been about baseball over the years. Um, it's I mean it's been we we're unique. In that in that regard, I mean, you find very few firms like ours that operate in California politics that are kind of like nonpartisan, bipartisan in that way. I mean, the short answer is we don't do a ton of really overtly partisan stuff. We did work on Villaraigosa. That was a governor's race. Um, But people aren't really going to come to us with like a targeted legislative race just because, you know, we are not that partisan type firm. Um, Leads us into a lot of issue advocacy, ballot measure advocacy, local government stuff. Um, And then when the big campaigns do need help in some of those regards, we have a lot of business sector work. I'm the PAC director for the L.A. County Business Federation. I do have another group in the Inland Empire and also in the Central Valley. Um, So people will come to us with, uh, you know, these kind of bespoke needs right, on their candidate campaign or on their issue campaign. That's where we slot in a lot of the time. You, you do newsletters also on local governments and cities and counties. Is that something you both collaborate on? I, I mean, I receive them in my mail. And I do I get those from you, from Mike, or both, or the company? From both. From both. It's, it's an operation, right? We have several writers that work on that. We even at one once upon a time had a partnership with Capital Weekly for content on those. Um, we've been publishing the flagship, I guess you'd say, is, uh, is the City News, the municipal-oriented one, which, again, it launched 15 years ago this week. Um, that goes That's out. That's getting old, you know? You're old. I know, right? You're Especially for the us. But it goes to about 15,000 subscribers, mayors, council members, city managers, and so forth. There's a big jobs board related to that. And we have some uh, 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 different publications oriented towards counties and schools. Mm-hmm. You find uh, is there room there for an education specifically an education newsletter? Is this we have a school boards Cal School News. Oh, you do. Okay. 
There is for sure. And there's a lot going on. That's a really interesting, it's been a really fast growing audience of ours. And, you know, the politics around school boards have changed just so dramatically um, and gotten so much more partisan, um, you know, around vaccines, around curriculum and so forth in recent years. I think, you know, one of the things that's been so interesting, uh, you know, in my career is following local government and the changes in it. I did a lot of writing last year because we've been tracking the partisanship of local officials over the last 10 or 15 years and seeing the dramatic changes like in the last, like basically since 2016, um, that's definitely bled over into the school boards as well. I have to say that has always been one of the most interesting things. You have this blue, very blue California. And yet in, I think even in 2015, a majority of local officials were Republicans. Up until 2015. Of, Correct. that's part of the change in the Trump era. But I mean, that was really a fascinating number. And so where are we now? Well, I mean, yeah, I could talk, I could fill the whole hour talking about that. You're correct. You know, for the first eight or eight or 10 years that we tracked this data, it was almost 50-50 with Republicans had a slight edge um, among city officials. And if you think about how many suburban cities there are, how many Central Valley cities there are, that made a lot of sense. And it drove a lot of politics around local government at the League of Cities and so forth. So um, as of 2015, it was like 46% REAP and 44% DEM, and there was some, some uh, no party preference. Once you hit 2016, it starts to diverge pretty dramatically. And then Democrats, by the end of the 2016 cycle, had a 6% advantage, first time probably in history, if you think about the history of municipalities, probably first time ever a majority of the local officials in California were Democrats. Um, it then went to eight, eight points um, in 2018. Then by the end of the 2020 cycle is a 13-point advantage for Democrats. Oh, so really dramatic. It's And it's a collapse driven. It, it, we found it was all over the state, but places like San Diego, Riverside County saw a dramatic collapse. The Sierras have seen a lot of folks move up there. So the bluing of the Sierra is a really interesting topic. I think Mark Baraback actually wrote about that. A lot of those mountain towns are, are, are dim, kind of enviro type places. Um, and this was driven um, uh, by a dramatic increase in the amount of women um, running and winning. Uh, there's been almost 15 point climb in how many women sit on local city councils in the last six years, went from 25% to almost 40. Um, some, some increase in representation from Latino and API communities. Um, among all of those, you know, the, the women that are running and winning are Democrats overwhelmingly. And so I think a lot of that has been driven politically, you know, by the Trump era and so forth. But there's also some really interesting structural things that have gone on the move to districts. Six years ago, there was maybe 25, 30, 40 cities that were districted. Now it's like 180 that are districted. Um, that dramatically favors younger progressive candidates because- As opposed of, to at-large elections? Correct, it? right? So you have a city like Duarte, it's one I always hold up. 22,000 people used to be at-large, right? There were five council members and you just kind of voted for two or three of them on a slate. Now there's seven districts there. Well, you've completely nullified the impact of money, right? How much money can you spend in a district that's got 3,000 voters, right? It's really easy to walk, um, really kind of levels the playing field. And that's happening in cities all over, predominantly in Southern California. Um, the other thing that happened is the legislature forced a lot of these cities to move on to even year elections. There's only three cities, I think, left that have odd year elections. It used to be 70 of the 90 cities in LA County had, you know, they were like March of the odd year. Now they're all consolidated. It's made those elections a lot more partisan. And now it's it's almost one of the first questions that candidates get, right? And that you would never ask. Is that a money saving thing or is that 
what prompted that was, I mean, is that a money saving thing? Is there a voting rights act thing at work here or what? Oh no, I think it was the legislature realized that by hosting these elections in odd years, you were getting a lot more Republican winners of those. Really? It was nominally driven by, you know, city of LA, you would be like, you know, we're getting like 11% turnout, right? In these municipal elections. And that, that was untenable. So they basically set a floor that if you are not meeting 20% turnout and you're yeah. off your cycle, you have to move. And I think that that, I was, I remember talking to capital staffers. I think they just picked a number that they knew none of them were going to hit and uh-huh. they all had to move. I've never been in favor of it. Maybe this is my Pollyanna speaking. Like, I always said moving those elections to, you know, the on cycle against the presidential and the gubernatorial, it's like putting the state of the union on after the Super Bowl to juice its ratings, right? You weren't actually getting people that were engaged more in their local politics, which is the nominal reason you would have these in the odd year. But I think also if you've got 12% turnout, it's sort of indefensible, right? How do you how do you do that? I think it leads to a really interesting point, something I'd love to talk about, which is the LA mayor's race. Um, and I'm working the city attorney's race, which is a city, citywide race in L.A. I believe that the winner of the mayoral race in L.A. this year will get the most votes in U.S. history for a municipal race. Because the city of, L- uh, city of New York, city of Chicago, Houston, I think Philadelphia, those are all still ho- uh, holding these odd year elections. Like the mayor of Houston won his race, with like I think 120,000 votes. Um, I actually think that the current record holder is probably Todd Gloria, um, who won his race. And I think he got like 300,000 votes to win in San Diego. There's going to be like 1.5 million people vote for mayor in um, in L.A. this cycle. So the winner is you know, going to get at least 750,000, maybe more. So I think it's, it's a really kind of like underappreciated facet of that race between Caruso and Karen Bass that it is uh, historic in a, in a really substantial way. We got a tutorial contest on the ballot this year, obviously, in November. Does that play into the local? Does that drive turnout, drive interest in the local local campaign? The ballot measures? Yeah. Uh, no, the gubernatorial race. Race for governor. Uh, I don't think there is much of a race for governor. So, no. I mean, I think <laughs> okay. that's actually, you know, when I, when, I'm saying, when I put my campaign strategist hat on, that's one of the most difficult things, right, is there is no real top of the ticket driving um, turnout. Um, you know, they put Prop 1 on the ballot. Um, which could which could have an impact the abort you know the uh, codification of abortion in, in California that may drive a little bit um, but you don't have a gubernatorial race you don't have a U.S. Senate race to speak of the other ballot measures um, I don't think are real turnout drivers or they're going to spend a ton of money um, you take that against the fact that you now have this male mail driven um, uh, voting which is really dramatically increasing turnout. You also have the advent of motor voter and automatically registering people. It's changed, as Paul Mitchell would say, changed the denominator pretty substantially. And I think that people are fooled a little bit when they, um, you know, on election night, they're like, oh, the turnout's so low. It's like 25, 30% or whatever, but then the ballots show up over the course of the month. And um, it turns out, you know, Paul Mitchell just put out today, it was a historic gubernatorial uh, primary turnout. This year, so we're seeing actually really high turnout, which is contra the conventional wisdom. You think a lengthy uh, a lengthy window between when you cast your ballot, when the final results are tallied, when that lengthens, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or whatever it is, there seems to be a lot of discussion. It always gives rise to discussion about well, the ballots. We have a problem with ballots being fixed. We got a problem with the system. Yeah, it's like an open invitation for people. Who 
want to have a reason to trash elections and do it. I think it's not ideal. And if you think about, um, you know, the stakes in the midterms, right, and we do have a lot of the targeted races are in California for the congressional in Orange yeah. County, North L.A. County, a few other places. If the balance of the House is coming down to California and everyone's got to wait for a month, you can imagine the national news cycle that would drive. Right? Yeah, you know, totally. the presidential, basically, people who know where California is going to come down in a lot of these congressional seats. It could there's there's a ton of room there. I think one of the things that speaks to in my mind is um, people not understanding the scope and scale of how many people are voting in California. Right. So much was made of the Liz Cheney election. Was that just this week? My sense of time is off a few days ago, I think. I mean, how many votes were cast in that? Like 200,000. Right. I mean, that's like a race in Santa Clarita. (laughs) Despite that, that, it's one race in Wyoming. Right. Uh, But it's been projected on that race has been projected the future of the Republican Party, the current status of the Republican Party. This one race represents whatever, you know, on the Republican Party, the, the, the power of Trump, the right. likelihood, all on this one race, it seems, at least for those like me who are not Wyomingites, you know, we look at it, and it seems to me like this is Wyoming. And, you know, as 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 Wyoming goes, so goes Wyoming. I mean, it, it just seems right. more than that, you know, I don't know. I mean, LA County is bigger than 35 states, 38 states. But, you know, going back to the counting of the ballots, I think it, I think it is not ideal that it takes a long time, but, you know, I mean, we should be counting all the votes. I think that, you know, the, um, the postal mail driven balloting, there's no question it's having an improvement in turnout. We've seen that in other states too, in Oregon and so forth. It doesn't improve participation, which I think is an unalloyed good. Um, You know, could we count them faster? I'm not a registrar. I wish we could count them faster. I'll tell you my, uh, one of my races, we were in an open primary, of course. Um, we were down by 5,000 votes on election night. We didn't, we didn't win that race until the end of the month. We were down by 5,000. Then oh, wow. we were down by 3,000, 1,500, 700. You know, all the way, we ended up emerging by 100, 137 votes out of 500,000. Oh, my God. So Less than a hundredth of a percentage point. Maybe we could just go all the way and we could follow the Alaska ranked choice voting where they go the top four they're, they're not going to know who's even, in the, I think, in the top four for the next month. Yeah, yeah. well, we have that. that. Oakland and San Francisco, I think, both do ranked choice voting. I mean, that's, oh, how, that's how Don Parada loses a mayor's race in Oakland. But do they, uh, <laughs> I don't think they have a top four. I think they just have a top two, right? I I have to say, I don't know. That's like the College World Series. Someone someday will explain to me how that works. <laughs> the right choice voting. I just, you know, I, I sort of get it. I don't know that it's actually such a hot idea, but there's you know, it's back, got some passionate Paul, advocates for sure. Back to Paul Mitchell, I think he really does dislikes yeah. ranked choice voting, if I remember right. But hey, it's Rob, to work in Maine and Alaska. We'll see if it works in Alaska. And then that's right, Alaska. In, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey Rob, what? Uh, just one last question on uh, the, for the discussion. What, what what's the number one issue right now, political issue in LA now, in your view? There's so many to pick from, probably. But well, so I think this is actually another really interesting that's happened in local government more broadly is the consolidation of the issues that voters actually care about starting to be local issues. Right. Okay. Fifteen years ago, you know, if you're a Democratic voter, you were you know thinking about like healthcare, Obamacare, or maybe the Iraq war, if you go back far enough, you really weren't concerned with like these issues in your locality. Now the issues that are really top of mind for voters, I think even in legislative and congressional races are things like um, housing, crime, 
homelessness, right? All of these things. And these have all developed a really um, passionate constituency at the local level. If you think about housing, you know, you 10 years ago, if you were running for local government office, you know, if you were in the Bay Area, you'd be talking about preserving open space. If you were in Orange County, you'd be talking about protecting community character, right? They're both NIMBY arguments, basically. Now there's, you know, a very pronounced YIMBY um, constituency and it's organized and it's increasingly well-funded and, you know, even, even kind of militant in a lot of ways. Um, similarly on policing, you have a substantial criminal justice um, reform constituency in local government, um, you know, as well as, and, and you know, the and homelessness, I think, kind of sits in between these two things, right? Between like the, the sort of crime thing, a lot of people perceive that there's an increase in crime driven by the homelessness issue. And then the housing advocates who either correctly point out the lack of housing is driving our homelessness issue. That is, those are the issues in LA, but I think those are the issues in a lot of in a lot of local communities, but in LA, it's it's very visceral, and LA politics has become um, extremely personal in a way that didn't used to be. I don't think I always said that you know LA LA used to have a corruption problem, still does, um, in a lot of municipalities. Whereas Orange County was like extremely kind of personal and vicious. I think that LA has started to adopt some of that sort of you know very personal, uh, destructive kind of politics. Well, that's not a pleasant thought. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to segue right now gracefully into who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Uh, Tim, what do you think? Well, unlike our average week where we are struggling to find our candidate for who had the worst week, yeah. this year we have a wealth of candidates. Uh so right off the bat, we have T.J. Cox, who formerly had the House seat that uh, David Valadao currently has, and he is in all sorts of legal trouble with, you know, improprieties with campaign finance, uh, and he's in big trouble from from my read on this. Yeah, yeah, he really is. He's uh, first of all, this extends beyond his one term in Congress. He served one term. Um, but this is this this developed this problem developed eleven counts I think it is of uh, wire fraud uh, money laundering fifteen counts of wire fraud institution fraud meaning bilking banks uh, there's a lot going on here that is separate and apart from his role as a congressman but of course he's a former congressman and so he gets all his attention twenty eight counts in total uh, one uh, story I saw. I think in the Fresno Bay said that he faces 20 years in prison. Um, he's got real problems. You're right. This is as bad a week as you can get, although he's not in custody. He did uh, make bail. He's been released and his trial starts in October. Didn't get much worse than that, I think. Rob, what do you think? Who's, who's your candidate for worst week? Oh, I think it has to be the consultants running the Gascon recall. Right. You know, they have uh, they, they came up short, you know, despite spending six million dollars and it was their second try also. And I think one thing that's like fascinating to me about that is how little the sort of framing of that recall has zeroed in on the fact that the people running it were these like Orange County Trump Republicans. Right. Um, you know, the consultants were all at Orange County on the first go. Fundraiser was, I think, one of Trump's top bundlers in California. The spokesperson was a Trump campaign spokesperson in the Midwest. And I think that's, you know, I followed a lot of recalls in the last year or so, and I actually worked on one up in Shasta County, um, where it was sort of similarly, you know, framed as this, you know, issue-driven 
recall and certainly there were issues at hand, but you know, it was a grift really, I think, you know, and I think it was the same thing in, in Shasta County. You had people that were, you know, had different competing interests that were certainly not what was talked about on the premise of the recall. But, you know, um, if you were to walk around LA and tell people that there's a bunch of Trump supporting Orange County um, Republican consultants trying to recall the DA, I think that's a much different framing of the issue than like, oh, we have a terrible crime problem and it lays at the door of the newly elected district. The attorney. signature gathering campaign, uh, the people who, who actually uh, had people out in the field doing that, a Florida-based outfit, I understood. Originally Newport Beach, but then I think that they changed horses. You know? Yeah, oh, they did. It was, it was all run out of that. And, you know, and I did the IE for Jackie Lacey um, in 2020. So I'm no, I mean, I'm no like fan of George Gascon per se, but it's it's been interesting to me that it hasn't been written about at a deeper level who was actually sort of operating that funding it. Well, this outfit sued um, the, the uh, recall campaign for half a million. You can say whatever you want in a lawsuit, obviously, but- mm -hmm. More they, than the signatures they, they got. Yeah, over the signature, they got 520,000 valid after turning in 717,000, I think. They needed 566 and some change. Right. They didn't make the signature threshold. One of the a, a Democratic consultants who wasn't involved in the campaign said, you know, if you got enough money, you can get almost 10% of anything going on in L.A. And they couldn't well, do that. They weren't able true. to do it at all, you know. Uh, also, they pay according to the lawsuit. The uh, these folks paid themselves four hundred thousand bucks. The campaign committee uh, in the first part of twenty twenty two. I can't believe they had that kind of money. Uh, normally, you'd have a lot of money to throw. They don't. They didn't. And I think all this kind of comes together. Sort There's of no mission without energy. a margin, John. Say what? There's no mission without a margin. Yeah, there, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it was, just, as you mentioned, it was the second time. The first one failed miserably. Uh, and here we went to the second one. So I guess Gascon is, he ain't going anywhere, at least for a while. No, and it'll be curious. I mean, the San Francisco recall came up short, um, but uh, Budin isn't running, right? Uh -huh. Similar issue in LA with Mike Bonin. Um, there was a really, you know, very high heat attempt to recall him that also came up short, but it led to him, he survived the recall, but then declared he wasn't going to stand for re-election. So some of these recalls, you know, maybe see a little bit of their ultimate aim come to fruition. I don't, I don't know what they were paying per se for Gascon. I remember in the bond and one, they were paying like 17, 18 bucks a signature and putting More people up in hotels, really? no putting people up in hotels to, to gather. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've made sort of a career working on ballot measure advocacy, so I'm not going to diminish the uh, the enterprise at all. But there, is, it has gotten a, I think, a fair ways away from the original concept of direct democracy. You know, another issue that was raised in the pro recall people were the was the use of email, heavy email, um, a heavy email program towards in the last few months of the campaign, which these people said, their the people who filed the suit said this was. Not a good idea. One of the consultants, not affiliated with the, either side, said it was like they were lighting money on fire by going this way. It wasn't very effective. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? They were emailing the petitions. I'm sorry? They were emailing the petitions out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, that's like the, the fusion bomb. If you could ever get to a point where you could actually email around like the state ballot measures, the, uh -huh. the requirements of the petition are so particular at the state level that 
I don't think it's possible. No lawyers ever told me it's it's permissible. But if they could get to that, that would really supercharge the direct democracy aspect. Now, on a recall, you can. And I've seen them, you know, you can just hard mail out the petition. It's like one form. Um, I've heard that you can email it as well, but your validity is going to be terrible. Right. And I, I said that from the outset when I found out how many signatures they turned in, they needed almost 80 percent validity, which is hard to get even with a really competent professional operation in L.A. Um, I never I, you know, I called it. I knew they weren't going to make it. All Rob, those emails are commissionable, though. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tim Foster. Thank you so much. Rob Karenke again. Thanks a lot. Thanks and for having me, guys. We'll be talking again in the future when we get our uh, studies on L.A. politics. So thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.